Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Today marks 25 years since Spice World was hit with a band-splitting jolt when Ginger Spice officially dropped the bomb that her girl power days were over. The announcement on May 31, 1998 by Jerry Hallowell sent shockwaves worldwide just days before the Spice Girls were set to begin a mega-hyped North American tour. Jerry was considered the guru of the band's girl power philosophy. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to revisit a History of the 90s episode from the beginning of Season 1 that was all about girl power. We'll be back in two weeks with brand new material. Until then, I hope you enjoy this episode. What do girls want? What do they really, really want? In the 1996 song Wannabe by the Spice Girls, they wanted would-be boyfriends to get their act together so they could be just fine. But that one song launched something more, much more. Girl power, feminism, do you know what I mean? I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is The History of the 90s, a podcast where we tell the stories that defined a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at the two words that introduced a generation of girls to feminism and empowerment, girl power. Being a teen girl in the 90s was tough, tougher than it had been in previous decades. More and more, girls were falling into drugs, self-harm, and eating disorders as a way to cope with what psychologist Mary Pfeiffer called a girl-poisoning culture. In 1994, a book by Pfeiffer called Reviving Ophelia, Saving the Selves of Adolescent Girls became a best-selling publishing phenomenon, suddenly putting the spotlight on teen girls. It identified the many mixed messages that girls were getting in the 90s. Be beautiful, but beauty is only skin deep. Be sexy, but not sexual. Be honest, but don't hurt anyone's feelings. It argued that girls were giving up their authentic selves to live up to cultural demands of thinness, beauty, and sexuality. Alison Yarrow, author of the book 90s Bitch, Media Culture and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality, says teen girls were bombarded with the perfect girl ideal thanks to the explosion of teen magazines in the 90s. Magazines like Teen Vogue, Seventeen, YM, and Sassy. This idea of the perfect girl was really just throughout each page. You could see young women who were thin, they were blonde, they were white, um, they didn't have rolls or a thigh gap. They, you know, they looked perfect, but they didn't look like they had to work for that perfection. So I think a lot of young girls in the 90s saw these images sort of in their magazines and also in the selling of clothing and makeup and sort of anything that was marketed to young women. They saw this perfect girl as the sort of the vector of this, you know, this desire to be perfect. Yarrow says girls were smart enough to know that the perfect girl wasn't real or achievable, but even still, they couldn't help but try to be her. This pressure led to self-destructive behaviors like self-harm, eating disorders, and even suicide. Self-esteem became a buzzword right around this time. It became the elixir or antidote 
to what was seen as the girl crisis of the 90s. So you saw sort of government programs about building self-esteem, and it was definitely sort of lip service given to young girls in elementary school and middle school and high school. You know, if only you had self-esteem, if you can sort of build self-esteem, then you can avoid some of the pitfalls that were associated with the girl crisis of the 90s. Right around this time, the ultimate self-esteem booster, girl power, rose to prominence. If you're thinking Spice Girls, you're not wrong. And I promise you, we will get to them. But you might not know that the two words best associated with that girl group from the UK was actually born out of the Riot Girl movement. The Riot Girl movement began in the early 90s in and around Olympia, Washington. It was part of the underground feminist punk scene and morphed into a loosely organized network of thousands of women worldwide. Young female musicians gathered for informal meetings to talk and support each other amid a rock scene that was very much a boys club. A Guardian article in 2009 described it this way. Riot Girl was angry and subversive. It mocked the doe-eyed, perfectly groomed cheerleader aesthetic. It was pierced, tattooed, and wore short skirts. It was loud, unapologetic, and vocal. The Riot Girl movement included bands like Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, and Heavens to Betsy. They wrote slut, rape, and whore on their stomachs at performances and protests, and they hoisted signs that read, We Are Not Things. They boycotted mainstream record labels and cultural influences. They ate vegetarian diets and avoided alcohol and drugs. Riot Girl developed in part as a reaction to the male-dominated punk scene in the Pacific Northwest, but it grew into so much more. It was really women artists and you know musicians coming together to protest um, just the various sort of cultural ills being perpetrated on young women, everything from um, you know harassment and abuse to uh, pay inequity, lack of reproductive choice and access. And so women, you know, sort of allowed for punk music to be the sort of the stage for, for these protests. So they wrote music and created art to raise awareness about these bigger issues. Music was simply a way to communicate the message that girlhood was under attack and it needed to be taken back by girls. Riot Girl had no leaders, but the band Bikini Kill was considered the backbone of the movement. The band formed in 1990 in Olympia, Washington, and then relocated to Washington, D.C. They believed that if all girls started bands, the world would change. They actively encouraged women and girls to start bands as a means of cultural resistance. The band was fronted by singer Kathleen Hanna. On stage between songs, she would talk about the sexual abuse she suffered, rape and being catcalled on the street by lewd men. After shows, fans would come up to her and tell her about their own similar experiences and how important it was for them to hear another woman talking openly about those things a phenomenon similar to the hashtag MeToo movement decades later. Hannah was famous for shouting girls to the front to protect fangirls at their shows from the moshing bodies of men. 
The band has described their shows back in the 90s as war, with men often going just to shout slurs and insults at them, or to try and enact violence against them. A January 2019 article in NME stated that skinheads would bring chains to their shows and throw them at the band. As for the term girl power, Hannah told Vice in 2016 she first used it in the early 1990s as the name of the band's fanzine. She and drummer Toby Vale were trying to invoke the strength of the Black Power slogan from the 60s and the 70s. Fanzines were DIY fan magazines that were photocopied and shared by a network of girls across the country. The girls wrote them, produced them, and distributed them on their own. If you're not familiar with zines, I guess you could say they were kind of like the original blogs, and they included articles about everything from boy trouble to where to buy a good guitar or how to make a good vegan burrito. They also took on some serious issues too, like abuse and reproductive rights. There were hundreds of Riot Girl fanzines with names like Wiglet, Quit Whining, and Girl Germs. Bikini Kill fanzines were sold at their shows and they contained the Riot Girl Manifesto, which outlined the movement's grievances and defined its goals. Because in every form of media, I see myself slapped, decapitated, laughed at, objectified, raped, trivialized, pushed, ignored, stereotyped, kicked, scorned, molested, silenced, invalidated, knifed, shot, choked, and killed. Because I am tired of these things happening to me, I am not a punching bag, I am not a joke. Because every time we pick up a pen or an instrument or get anything done, we are creating the revolution. We are the revolution. This was all happening at a time when traditional feminism was considered by some as undesirable and inaccessible. A 1991 book by journalist Susan Faludi called Backlash made waves for pointing out the ways that society and the media had turned feminists into a negative stereotype after the feminism wave of the 70s. Feminism was largely the domain of academia. The women's movement didn't have a language for reaching young girls. The language and ideas of Riot Girl suddenly made feminism more accessible. In a 2016 Vice article, writer Jenny Stevens said that Kathleen Hanna once told her that her goal was to make feminism something that could be approached by all women, not just well-off white university grads. What started off as an underground movement soon attracted the attention of mainstream media. After the Riot Girl movement was featured in the LA Weekly in July 1992, other media outlets wanted a piece of them. Stories appeared in Rolling Stone, New York Times, and Playboy. A 1992 article in Newsweek magazine called the Riot Girls a new feminist voice for the video age generation. With this heightened awareness of the Riot Girl movement came a lot of unwanted attention as well. Articles trivialized the movement by focusing on what members wore and how they cut their hair. Riot Girl was categorized as feminist fury, in-your-face feminism, and mean, mad, and defiantly underground. The media pigeonholed them as combat boot-wearing man-haters 
angry rape and incest survivors, former sex workers, and caricatures of girlhood. And the Riot Girl radical feminist philosophy quickly got watered down. Girls all over the country started to emulate Riot Girl media celebrities like Kathleen Hanna by wearing army boots and dyeing their hair crazy colors without the slightest idea about what feminism was or why it was important. Even the teen magazine Seventeen tried to cash in on the movement. According to a 2013 article in The Guardian, the teen mag handed out little plastic cards with these words on them. If you like Bratmobile or Bikini Kill or Hole, then you'll like Seventeen too. The result was a media blackout called by Kathleen Hanna in 1992. The decision eventually caused the movement to fragment and then amid the growing popularity of the grunge scene, the Riot Girl movement dissolved. Riot Girl was painted as just another fashion craze rather than a legit feminist movement. Author Alison Yarrow believes, despite its short lifespan, the Riot Girl movement had a major impact on 90s music, leading to the rise of musicians like Alanis Morissette, Paula Cole, and Lisa Loeb. What we come to think of now as mainstream 90s musicians really kind of came out of the Riot Girl movement in a way because what the Riot Girl movement did is that it really validated female anger for the first time and allowed it to emerge in the public consciousness. The public became aware that female anger was real. The Riot Girl movement may have been the first to use the term girl power, but five girls from the UK took it global. In February 1994, the London-based father-son management team of Bob and Chris Herbert published an ad in a British trade magazine looking for performers for an all-female pop group. The ad asked, are you 18 to 23 with the ability to dance or sing? Are you streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, and dedicated? One month later, hundreds of eager young women answered the ad and showed up to audition. Five were selected. Victoria Adams, Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, Jerry Hallowell, and Michelle Stevenson. That's right, no Emma Bunton. She came a little bit later. And they weren't called Spice Girls at first. The band's original name was Touch. Within a few months, it was decided that Michelle Stevenson wasn't a good fit for the group, so she was cut. And in came Emma Bunton. The five members of Touch lived together and spent their days in studio taking dancing and singing lessons. The girls spent nearly a year rehearsing the same four songs. During that time, the songs Wannabe and To Become One were written and recorded. And not long after that, the soon-to-be Spice Girls pulled their first girl power move, led by Jerry. They were growing more and more unhappy with their 23-year-old manager, Chris Herbert. So they did what any enterprising young band would do. In a scene straight out of the Spice Girls movie, they stole their master recordings from their management's office and started looking for a new manager on their own. According to David Sinclair in his book, Wannabe, How the Spice Girls Reinvented Pop Fame, Jerry and the Two Mels 
went to the management offices, and by means that remain unclear to this day, they managed to retrieve the master recordings of their songs. Meantime, Victoria and Emma went to the studio where they'd been working to collect various odds and ends that belonged to the group, and the heist was complete. The band, which was now called Spice, soon found a home with Simon Fuller, who managed the career of Annie Lennox, and the girls signed their first major deal with Virgin Records in September 1995. That's where Ginger, Sporty, Scary, Baby, and Posh officially became the Spice Girls. According to a 2017 article on Uproxx, this was a really important moment for the Spice Girls. This is when they took control of their brand and began heading in the feminist direction that would ultimately define their career and introduce the world to the brand of girl power. If you wanna be my Wannabe took on a life of its own when it was first released. It was an instant hit with fangirls and some fanboys who loved its empowering message. Female friendships are everything. The Spice Girls were the original girl squad. They were strong, independent women who wore what they wanted, whether it was a baby doll dress or an Adidas tracksuit. Wannabe topped the charts for four weeks in North America and seven weeks in the UK. That made the Spice Girls the first female group ever to top the charts with a debut single. It went to number one in 30 countries and sold over 6 million copies in 1996. Their second and third singles, Say You'll Be There and To Become One, also topped the charts. Following their massive commercial success, the Spice Girls began to build out their girl power image even more. Emma Bunton summed up the ethos this way. Girl power is about being whoever you want to be, wearing your short skirts, your wonder bra, and your makeup, but having something to say as well. Okay, so let's talk about some of the group's biggest girl power moments, and there's a few of them. On February 24th, 1997, the Spice Girls won two Brit Awards and performed live at the show. You may remember the buzz around what Jerry wore on stage that night a skimpy Union Jack dress. Jerry apparently made the dress out of a tea towel two nights before the awards show. That dress became an iconic and a little bit controversial symbol of the band. But there was something else going on that night at the awards show, which was even more memorable. Prior to the ceremony, Liam Gallagher of Oasis stated in the British media that he wasn't going to go to the Brit Awards because if he bumped into the Spice Girls, he would smack them. So during the band's acceptance speech for Best British Single, Sporty, or Mel C, challenged Gallagher by saying, I just want to say, Liam, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. The girls seem to have a general no boys allowed attitude, and they let interviewers know that, particularly male ones. When an American radio DJ asked the girls about picking up guys, Mel B, or Scary Spice, responded with a bit of a smackdown. She shouted, excuse me, this is about girl power. This isn't about picking up guys. We don't need men to control our lives. We control our lives anyway. There were things happening behind the scenes too. 
In recent years, a leaked video made the rounds on social media that showed the girls taking on the director of a Polaroid commercial they were filming in 1997. Victoria, Mel B, and Jerry can be seen giving him the gears after he asked them to show more cleavage and midriff. In the footage, Mel B can be seen marching up to the director and asking, was it you? Why did you ask that we show cleavage and midriffs? He replies, it's every man's fantasy, before adding, that's showbiz. Jerry points a finger in his face and calls him a chauvinistic pig, while Victoria steals his sunglasses. It's not sunny, she says, pulling his sunglasses from his head. Stop trying to look cool. As a final dig to the director, Jerry tells him he should know better at his age. For what it's worth, the final version of the 90s commercial did not include any cleavage or midriff. Auntie Donahue is an author and media personality who writes about the power of pop culture. She's also an admitted Spice Girls superfan. And she says that as a kid, she didn't realize what a big deal it was to see them push back in the ways that they did. It was when I was an adult, though, and kind of like re-examining their place in pop culture that like you do realize how rare it was for very, very, very famous women to break from protocol and act out and call out in a way that they tended to do. Sometimes speaking out landed them in hot water. In 1996, Jerry was criticized when she said British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was the first Spice Girl and that she was the pioneer of girl power. Feminists took offense to the comment because Thatcher, as Britain's first female Prime Minister, promoted only one woman to cabinet and many of her policies had negative impacts on ordinary women. And according to her own advisor, Paul Johnson, Thatcher openly stated that she hated feminism, calling it poison. More recently, Jerry sparked controversy again after Thatcher's death in 2013. Jerry tweeted, Thinking of our first lady of girl power, Margaret Thatcher, a greengrocer's daughter who taught me anything is possible. Jerry quickly deleted the tweet after she was inundated with negative responses. But then in a subsequent blog post, Jerry expressed regret over deleting her tweet, saying, now I realize that I do admire a woman, whether she is right or wrong, regardless of her opinions. I look at my behavior, which exposed how weak I was under fire, not like Margaret Thatcher. Auntie Donahue said back when she was 12, she viewed the Spice Girls as the cool older sisters who did whatever they wanted. Oh, you can live this way? Oh, like, oh, like you can... You can dress however you want. You can live on a spice bus. Like you can wear platform shoes everywhere. You can like have candy for dinner. Like it was this idea of like girlhood and womanhood that you never see outside of the cultural, like pop culture and that uh, landscape. I'd say. Donahue says the Spice Girls also helped to normalize casual and responsible sex. She believes the band used their public presence to push a sex-positive message that wasn't being told by many other female pop performers in the 90s. She points to the song, To Become One. They literally say, like, come a little bit closer, baby, put it on. And so I remember being 12 and, and knowing what they meant, but not knowing what they meant. Like, you're, <laughs> you're 
you don't really know, but you kind of know. Um, I'm thinking like, oh my God, how scandalous is that? The Spice Girls may have been associated with female empowerment back in the day, but according to Mel C., they never initially intended to bring girl power to the world. In a 2018 interview with Female First, Mel C. said that girl power was created by the sexism that the Spice Girls encountered in the music business in the 90s. She said, When we started, we were a pop group, and we just wanted to sing and be famous and travel the world. And we never really thought about that side of things at all. But as soon as we were heading into the music industry, we started to be faced with some sexism. We were told girls don't sell. We would go into magazines and editors would tell us, we can't put you on the cover because we won't sell enough magazines this week. Mel C went on to say, that really made us have a bee in our bonnets. And that's when we started talking about girl power. We realized we had something really important to say. It gave us even more determination to succeed because we realized very early on, we weren't just doing it for ourselves and each other, we were doing it for girls. Being told we couldn't do something was like a red rag to a bull to the Spice Girls. So where did the Spice Girls come up with the girl power slogan? Is it possible they were tuned in to the riot girl movement across the Atlantic? Well, Ginger Spice says, no way. That's not how they came up with the popular mantra. In 2016, Vice writer Jenny Stevens asked Jerry if she'd ever heard of Kathleen Hanna and Riot Girl. Jerry apparently looked confused and shook her head no. So Stevens asked Jerry where girl power came from. She said, from the band Shampoo. Shampoo was a 90s British pop-punk female duo somewhere in between Riot Girl and the Spice Girls. They wore shirts that said Tart and Dolly Bird on them. They were wild, outrageous, and rebellious. And the title track for their 1996 album was called Girl Power. In a 1997 Spice Girls documentary called One Hour of Girl Power, Mel B described girl power this way. It's about spreading a positive vibe, kicking it for the girls. Critics were quick to pounce on the Spice Girls for using their platform to promote girl power. They called it a packaged, watered-down form of feminism. Feminist writers condemned the band for promoting a light and frothy feminism that they called feminism light because it detracted from the real issues of gender politics. According to Caitlin Moran, the author of How to Be a Woman, the Spice Girls were responsible for wiping out feminism for a decade. She told The Guardian their frivolous girl power rhetoric simplified the women's movement to having girlfriends and wearing short skirts. Author Alison Yarrow, on the other hand, sees both the pros and the cons to the Spice Girls message. The Spice Girls absolutely helped introduce um, 90s girls to the idea of girl power and to, frankly, to the, the qualities of girl power that could feel good and could be empowering for them. 
But at the same time, it was kind of a mixed message because they were so overtly objectified and sexualized. And, you know, anytime something is for sale, that's not feminism. And sell they did. After the success of Wannabe, suddenly everyone wanted a piece of girl power. And in 1997, they very quickly had their own Spice Girls dolls, as well as sponsorships and merchandise deals with brands like Chupa Chups, Impulse Deodorant, and Pepsi. According to Rolling Stone, in the 90s, the girls made up to $75 million a year, thanks to touring, merchandising, and the iconic Spice World movie. It was hard not to question whether the Spice Girls' girl power was authentic or just another way to sell stuff to young consumers. There are other aspects of the Spice Girls that have been viewed as problematic. In an article on Refinery29, writer Ariana Davis points out that the girls' nicknames reinforce the stereotype that women have to fall into specific personality boxes. There's the innocent girly girl, baby, the tomboy, sporty, the stylish sex kitten, posh, the fiery one, ginger, and the outspoken black woman, scary. Those archetypes are as old as time and played into traditional views of womanhood. But Davis acknowledges that others may have seen it differently. For some, sporty showed they didn't have to be the girly girl to be accepted. While for young brown girls like herself, Scary was an outspoken black feminist icon at a time before performers like Beyonce and Lizzo existed. And there is no denying that Spice Girls were a gateway to feminism for some young girls. The term girl power was easy to digest and easy to understand. Yes, it fit nicely on a pencil case or a t-shirt, but that made it all the more accessible to young girls. Auntie Donahue thinks Spice Girls were a good first step toward being proud to identify as a girl. They were a good catchphrase that sometimes I think you need when you're small, but that can't be your only feminist uh, leaning because there's nothing there other than like, girls can do what they want, but it's like, they can't though. That's, <laughs> that is the catch. Since the 90s, when Spice Girls were promoting girl power, teen girls have continued to struggle with self-esteem. Here's Alison Yarrow again. As long as the sort of mainstream media we consume, be it, you know, teen magazines in the 90s or social media today, these platforms have tremendous power. And when they present images of, you know, quote unquote, successful womanhood, that looks like sort of objectified bodies and overtly sexualized, sort of pandering to the male gaze, female bodies. That's really toxic for young women, whether it's in the 90s or now. One bright spot is that women in pop music have made huge strides since the 90s. The pop world is dominated, not just by women, but by women who publicly identify as feminists. Artists like Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, and Beyonce, who memorably stood in front of a giant feminist sign blazing from behind her silhouette at the 2014 MTV Music Video Awards. 
a moment that Time magazine said reclaimed the term from its troubled past. What Bay just did for feminism on national television, look, for better or for worse, that reach is way more than anything we've seen, declared Roxanne Gay, author of The Bad Feminist on Twitter. She also recently noted that other celebrity feminists like Jennifer Lawrence and Lena Dunham have reclaimed and rebranded feminism, making it more palatable to people who may still have some negative associations with the word. In 2016, the Spice Girls' iconic hit, Wannabe, was used as part of the UN's Project Everyone. The campaign used the original recording by the Spice Girls, but with a new girl power emphasis. In the video, a diverse group of female singers and actors, including Canadian YouTube star Taylor Hatala, lip sync and dance to the song against backdrops with signs calling for equal pay and an end to violence against women from all around the world. The 21st century wannabe has over 2 million views on YouTube, where the accompanying blurb urges viewers to share a photo with a sign stating what you really, really want for girls and women. This year, when the Spice Girls, minus Victoria Beckham, went on tour, they expanded their message from girl power to people power welcoming all ages, races, identities, countries of origin, sexual orientations, religions, and abilities. Emma Bunton said the Spice Girls in 2019 are about equality and bringing everyone together. Girl power, like Beyonce's feminist moment, was a gateway to many girls' first taste towards empowerment. And there will be more in the future who will do this as well. However, as Roxanne Gay said in The Guardian in 2014, there's nothing wrong with famous women or men claiming the cause. But the feminist brand ambassadors are a gateway to feminism, not the movement itself. So what began in the Pacific Northwest with Kathleen Hanna and a reaction to a male-dominated punk rock scene has morphed and changed in so many ways over the years, for better and for worse. But what cannot be denied is that girl power became part of our common consciousness in the 90s, and its lasting effect is heard in the discussions we're having now, almost 30 years later. Thanks for joining me on this look at girl power in the 90s. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard on this episode and links to our guests, Alison Yarrow and Auntie Donahue. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History and Instagram and Facebook. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.